sport. Not really. <laughs> but baseball is something that I've kept my eye on over the years, particularly New England baseball. And baseball is a game of rituals. It's a game of routines and secrets. It's a game of superstitions. It's a timeless game played by grown men who get paid to be boys. Superstitious boys. In 2007, uh, Boston Globe wrote this article with really an interview with Carl Yastrzemski. And if you know anything about New England baseball, you remember who Carl Yastrzemski was. Carl Yastrzemski is sitting in a golf cart at the Red Sox minor league complex in Fort Myers, avoiding the crowds and raving about a 19-year-old prospect named Lars Anderson from Jesuit High School in Carmichael, California. Forty years since the 1967 impossible dream season elevated baseball to sacred cow status in Boston, the 67-year-old Yaz is asked about superstitions. Instead, the last man to win the coveted triple crown chats about the weather, fishing, injuries, and aging. Then the greatest living Red Sox reveals that for seven years he never changed his Red Sox. He says, I, I think I wore them from the start of 67 to 73, says Yaz, breaking out that infectious grin. He says, the, the Red Sox, they had that big hole in them and everything else, but I wouldn't change them. I kept wearing them and wearing them and wearing them and wearing them. Yaz, like most baseball players, is superstitious. A little bit, he acknowledges. First baseman Dick Stewart, known as Dr. Strangeglove, he used to get comfortable in the batter's box and then take his used gum out and toss it across the plate at every at-bat. Third baseman Wade Boggs. He made it into the Hall of Fame with a routine of eating chicken before every game, taking batting practice at exactly 5.17, of running wind sprints at exactly 7.17. He also took exactly 150 ground balls in practice, and he carved the Hebrew chi symbol in the dirt each time he stepped to the plate, even though he's not Jewish. Shortstop, this is the one that I remember very distinctly, Nomar Garcia Parra. Remember Nomar? Probably not. We're in Ohio after all. Nomar Garcia Parra taught a whole generation of New England kids to tap their toes and adjust their batting gloves every single pitch. No major league, no major sport has more rituals or superstitions than baseball. Players avoid touching foul lines as if they're the third rail. They never talk to the pitcher in the late stages of a no-hitter. Never. Some behave as if the baseball gods will strike them dead if they don't follow the same rituals. Many Christians would say, or many people would say that we as Christians are superstitious. In fact, many of the, the cultural elites of the day would say that, that because we believe in things like a literal resurrection, a literal seven-day creation, a literal future judgment, that we're merely superstitious. And as such, we should be written off as simple-minded at best or dangerous to society at worst. But truth be told, Christians repeatedly buy into superstition. 
Benny Hinn has built a multi-million dollar empire on the superstitious belief of faith healing. Hollywood has helped to perpetuate a, a superstitious belief regarding, for example, the, the, the work and role of angels and the afterlife. In fact, when someone dies, and I hear it almost every time, when someone dies, people will often say something to the effect of, well, heaven got another angel. That is blatantly not true. In fact, it would be a demotion. It would be a step down. It would be a demotion for a redeemed child of God, someone for whom Christ died, to be considered merely an angel. Jesus Christ did not give his life on the cross in order to make you into an angel. Angels are not created in the image of God. In fact, 1 Peter tells us that angels long to look into the revealed gospel that brings salvation. Salvation is not an option for angels. Christians can sometimes believe superstitious things. And that's why it's important for us to understand the truth. Paul will tell Titus in his short letter to, to Pastor Titus, he will tell him to, to appoint elders for, in, for every church who will, he says, or who must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. We need to hold fast to the truth so that we don't get swept up in superstitions. We live in a world that claims science as its highest authority, while at the same time it is completely inundated with superstitious beliefs. But we, as Christians, claim the Bible as our highest authority. And in fact, we would even go so far as to say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In a world full of super, superstition, Jesus stands out as a direct reflection and even the, the incarnation of the power of God. Jesus stands as the source of true healing and as a warning against something much worse. And the only response to Jesus and his claims is to be to stop sinning and start believing. So turn to John chapter 5. I want to read verses 1 through We'll read through 18. We're really only going to get to about 15 this morning. But John chapter 5, verse 1. <coughs> After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me. The man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? 
The man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Lord, I pray that you would give us what we need this morning. Help us to understand your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this chapter, beginning right in verse 1, opens a a new section in John's gospel. We still find ourselves in what is known as the book of the signs, really all the way through chapter 12. These are, these are uh, accounts of, of Jesus' miraculous signs that are they're still the focus here. They point us to his true identity. But beginning here in verse 1 of chapter 5, we see some, or really in this whole section, we see some rising opposition to Jesus, even as he continues to teach and work wonders. At this point, Jesus' public ministry is well underway. And as John progresses here in this story, in this narrative account, we will see that Jesus will increasingly allow himself to move into the center of attention. That's an important point. See, earlier at the, at the beginning of chapter 4, uh, Jesus had left Jerusalem because he was gaining some notoriety. But beginning here in chapter 5, we see him gradually begin to allow people, particularly the Pharisees, or as John will call them, the Jews. He means the Pharisees, the Jewish leadership. He begins to allow them to hear his claims. And it, it is those claims, according to verse 18, that lead to his persecution directly and eventually to his death. But keep in mind as we walk through all of this chapter and really the rest of the book, in John chapter 10, Jesus said, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And then he clarifies, he says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So, We believe that Jesus is being very intentional here in in healing this man, but also in provoking the religious leaders. And through all of this, he begins to reveal his true identity and his true mission. Now, we don't know how much time passes between chapter 4 and 5. Verse 1 simply starts with, after this. So a, a certain amount of time passes when he is in the region of Galilee, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all account for that time, probably several months, and during which he is teaching and healing and, and gaining disciples, or at least followers. But at some point after this, Jesus uh, travels back to Jerusalem for a feast, a religious feast, although John doesn't tell us which one. And he purposely doesn't tell us which one because it, it is a, a different religious observance that will soon be the center of their conflict, namely the Sabbath. 
It's often said that the work of preachers is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Jesus does that here. In fact, in this passage, we can see three or four truths about Jesus that we can still find comfort in today. So let me give you all four of them right now. The first is this, that Jesus heals. Jesus heals. The second, Jesus provokes. Jesus heals and Jesus provokes. But then the third is that Jesus demands repentance. Jesus demands repentance or obedience, we could say. And then the fourth one is Jesus works. Jesus heals, Jesus provokes, Jesus demands repentance, and Jesus works. I don't think we're going to get to the fourth point this morning. Uh, We'll get at that next time, Lord willing. Let's begin with Jesus heals. Jesus heals. This particular healing uh, kind of pits religious superstition against the truth of Jesus. Look again at verses 2 and 3 where where John provides us with some details so that that we, his readers, might be able to to visualize this scene. So picture this scene beginning in verse 2. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Today, uh, we're not quite sure where this is. Exactly. Jerusalem was pretty thoroughly destroyed by the Roman army in 70 AD. But if this is where we think it was, archaeologists believe that this pool is about the size of a football field. It's about 20 feet deep. In fact, it was, it was probably two pools, one for men and, and one for women, surrounded by these four porticos, which were these, these columned, kind of covered porches where people would no doubt gather in the shade. And then there was another portico, another kind of porch column area in in between, so a fifth one in between, separating the two pools. And in the days before indoor plumbing, these would essentially act as public baths. And they became popular gathering places, particularly for those who had nowhere else to go, beggars, other people. So again, verse 3 says, In these lay a, mul- <coughs> excuse me, a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And at this point, you may notice that um, when I read this passage, I didn't read verse 4. Actually, the end of verse 3 and verse 4. Actually, in the newer versions, such as the English Standard that I use, um, Verse 3 and all of verse 4 is in the footnotes. It's at the bottom of the page. There's probably an asterisk there. The older versions, it's there in the text, but it's probably bracketed off. It probably has some uh, bars around it. There's two reasons for this. The first is that the, the oldest manuscript copies of John's gospel that we have don't contain those words. Verse 4, most of, uh, part of verse 3 and verse 4. Uh, just this small section that probably means that John didn't write it. Probably it was added in later by a scribe. Just that one little section, just verse 4. The second reason that it is not really included in the text, or at least marked off, is that the later copies of John that we do have that do contain verse 4, they actually vary widely from each other. So they would say very different things, whereas the rest of John's gospel is very, uh, very similar. 
So the copies of John from the early centuries of the church, they either don't have verse 4 or they say some different things. So it's likely, I believe, and most scholars would say, that a scribe or a, a few scribes, as they are copying and even translating John, that they added this verse in order to explain and describe the superstition that many believed at this time. So, so here's the superstition. It's John chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. I'm going to read it from the NASB. It's in the uh, text in the New American Standard Version. But it says this, verse 3. In these lay a multitude of those who are sick, blind, lame, and withered, or paralyzed. Here's the part that's not probably written by John. Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now again, this is superstition. John probably didn't write those words and didn't believe that that was true. But it does help us to explain this man's response to Jesus down in verse 7. Just look at verse 7. After Jesus asked him if he wanted to be healed, he said, Uh, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going down, another steps down before me. But before we go any further, we need to ask a difficult question. So you don't get hung up on, is that verse supposed to be there or not? There's another question, I think, that should stand out to us. Why did Jesus choose this man? Why did Jesus single him out? Look at verses 5 and 6. One man who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? What was it that drew Jesus to this man? Did Jesus stand at at the entrance to the pool area knocking, saying, whosoever will, come to me and I will heal No, he simply sees him lying there. He knows he's been there for a long time and he walks up to him and he asks him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? We honestly don't know why he chose this man. If it were me, I may have had compassion on an old woman, maybe a child who was sick or paralyzed, maybe a young mom, I don't know why Jesus chose this guy. Except John does give us one small clue, and I think it's the 38 years. But it is entirely possible, maybe even likely, that there were others there who had been in bad shape for longer than 38 years. Or maybe they were in even worse physical shape. So I don't want to read too much into the 38 years, except to say this, and I think this is the point. He's hopeless. He's not going to get better. As we read this, we can only view this man as completely hopeless. He himself is hoping against all hope that somehow he will be able to get into the water and somehow be healed. Yet we can look at this and see that in reality he is hopeless. He's been there for 38 years. No superstition is going to heal this man. So I want to be clear, John has set the stage so that we would understand really the very real gravity of this situation. 
So here we are in Jerusalem at a, at a religious festival. And this man's only hope is that he might somehow be the first in the water when it is stirred up. And he might as well be waiting for a genie. He is hopeless. And then Jesus chooses him. Out of all the multitude of invalids, it says it twice that there's a lot of people there. Out of the multitude of people, Jesus singles him out and he asks him this all-important question. Do you want to be healed? Do, do you want to be healed? Everyone sitting there probably would have answered, yeah, we all want to be healed. That's why we're here. Why would Jesus choose this man to ask? Was it simply that he'd been there for such a long time or, or could there be more to it? There's another instance of Jesus healing a man by telling him to take up his bed and walk. Turn over to Mark chapter 2. We're going to see the similarities and the differences here. In Mark chapter 2, beginning right in verse 1, probably this happens between John chapter 4 and 5 when he's in Galilee. Probably. In John chapter 2, he's in Galilee, specifically in, in Capernaum. Verse 1 says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And as he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing him a, a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed in which the paralytic lay. And Jesus saw their faith. He said, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned him within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like that. This healing in John is similar to that, but certainly not the same. In Mark, four men bring their friend to Jesus, and based on their belief, Mark says, he forgives, then heals him. Here, as he's been lowered in front of the whole assembly. Here, Jesus picks him out of the crowd, and he chooses him, and he says, do you want to be healed? Why, again, would Jesus choose this man? This is a question that we must wrestle with, and we must do so through the Scriptures. We have to wrestle with this as Christians, and so to answer it, we need to look around the Scriptures a little bit. Uh, in our adult Sunday school class, we've been working through Genesis, so we're going to start there. And so let me answer this question, why would he choose this man, with a series of questions that, that really have all the same answer. So the first is, why did God save Noah? Why did God save Noah? In Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, we read this. 
Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in all the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Question two. So the first question is, why would God save Noah? Question two. Why did God choose Abram? Why Abram? Why Abraham? Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. Abram is just listed at the end of chapter 11 by name. That's all we know about him. We know his father's name, and that's about it. In chapter 12, verse 1, we read, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why Abram? Why would God choose, why would God save Noah? Why would God choose Abram? Or maybe even question three, why did God bless Jacob? Why did God bless Jacob? In Genesis chapter 35, beginning in verse 9, we read this. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give you the land of your offspring after you. Why would God choose Jacob? Why did Jesus choose this man here in John's Gospel? Why did God save Noah? Why did, he, why did he choose Abram? Why did he bless Jacob? Okay, what about us? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Why would God redeem us? Why did Jesus look at this crowd of invalids? Actually, Paul says that we were dead, Ephesians. Why did Jesus look at a a crowd of dead people and choose you or me? We have to look at the scriptures for the answer. I'm going to give it to you right now. It's Romans chapter 9, verses 13 through 18. Go back to Jacob for a moment. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, God says. 
Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. Listen, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. Did you catch that? God saved Noah. He chose Abram. He blessed Jacob. He healed this man and he redeemed us so that he might show his power in you, in us, and that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God singled out all of these people in order that he might show himself to be the faithful covenant keeper. And he sent his son to be the promised crusher of serpents' heads. And the son revealed himself to be the promised Messiah by healing this man so that he might show his power and thereby reveal his true identity as the Christ, the son of the living God. He had said to the Samaritan woman, I who speak to you am he. I am the Christ. And as he does so, he actually forces controversy that will eventually really serve to separate the sheep from the goats. Jesus uses this healing to provoke his enemies. See, not only does Jesus heal, not superstition, But Jesus, not only does Jesus heal, but Jesus also provokes. Jesus provokes. Look at this man's answer. Do you want to be healed? Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. This, This unnamed, lame man responds apparently with some kind of respect. He calls him Sir, but it's pretty clear that he doesn't have the first clue who Jesus is. He evidently thinks he's just your average passerby, just somebody showing up at the pool. Even though Jesus seems to ask him a super obvious question, he answers with some honesty, at least at first glance. Further down in the passage, as we look at this man's words, we can see that maybe, maybe he's a little bit of a manipulator. Maybe he's trying to use Jesus. So in verse 11, in order to avoid difficulties with the authorities, he shifts the blame for breaking the Sabbath on the one who'd healed him. In verse 13, we see that he he didn't even bother to find out Jesus' name. And then once he does figure it out, he reports him to the authorities in verse 15. D.A. Carson, one of the commentators, he says of this passage, he says, in this light, verse 7 reads less as an an apt and subtle response to Jesus' question than as the crotchety grumblings of an old and not very perceptive man who thinks he's answering a stupid question. And I would add, while also hoping that Jesus will still give him some money, no doubt. I, I think he's a manipulator. So I would add as a homework assignment, you can think about this this afternoon, if you want to read how someone ought to respond to Jesus' healing, 
in fact, a very similar healing. Read John chapter 9. If you want to know how you ought to respond when Jesus heals you, read John chapter 9. Don't read it now. Read it later. Regardless of whether or not verse 4 and the, and the superstition should be included in this passage, verse 7 tells us that this man believed something superstitious. And yet Jesus simply commands him without saying anything else. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your mat and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Without delay, this man does exactly what Jesus tells him to do. He is completely and fully healed. He doesn't stagger around. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't say, have you seen? I've been here for 38 years. He just gets up, rolls up his bed, his mat, and he walks away. He just seems to walk away from Jesus. He just seems to get up and leave. It's at this point that we can see that Jesus has done his provoking. See, he did this on the Sabbath. He healed this man. He told him those words specifically on the Sabbath. And just when it looked like the, this kind of conflict was over before it started, John points out for us that Jesus actually used this encounter to provoke his enemies, to provoke his enemies. He commanded this man to take up his bed, knowing that it was the Sabbath, knowing that according to the Jewish religious leaders, it was against Sabbath regulations for this man to carry his mat, his bed. But I want to point out that it, it's not against God's law uh, for this man to simply carry his bed. This is just a, a, a mat. Uh, it's not against God's law for him to pick it up and carry it home with him. The Old Testament prohibits work on the Sabbath, yes, but the work that the law prohibits is the normal employment that the people found themselves in day after day. Not any kind of strain, not any kind of stressful picking up things. It isn't against God's law to pick up something like your child, for example, which probably weighed way more than a mat. What they were accusing him of, uh, what they're accusing him of breaking really was what was what was known as the tradition of the elders. He was breaking their man-made laws. He wasn't really breaking God's law. So Jesus is intentional about his provocation here. He's bringing together really two wrong beliefs about God. So on the one hand, this man believes that if he could just follow a magic formula, if he can just get into the water at just the right time, then he'll be healed. This kind of religious superstition is, it really is mysticism. It's not Christianity. We often, as Christians, we get sucked right into this at times. We believe wrong things, as I said earlier, about angels. Like, like this man evidently believed wrong things about angels. We believe wrong things about Jesus. We believe wrong things about God, mystical things, superstitious things. And then on the other hand, the Jews believed that God would reward their law-keeping with his favor, that he would bless them if they would just obey to the T his law and also enforce others to do the same. Here Jesus is provoking both. He's provoking both in order to engage them directly with himself, essentially to, to wrestle with the question that he will eventually ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Is he a, a mystical healer? 
Is he a law enforcer? Who, who do you say who Jesus is? Who is this man? Look at verse 11. Start in 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. And he answered them, The man who healed me. That man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. So they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? The man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. So when he's called out by these Pharisees, this man resorts to blaming the one who told him to get up and walk. And of course, in their minds, uh, anyone who's going to go around telling people to break their laws is more dangerous than this simple beggar. And so they question him. And after 38 years of disability, he sounds like a teenager. And I'm sorry, teenagers. But he goes, I don't know. Who told you to get up and take up your bed and walk? I, I don't know. He doesn't know who it was that healed him. Now, maybe Jesus prevented him from knowing this, but he puts exactly zero effort into finding out who it was. In fact, he got up and walked away. And so after successfully provoking the bear of the Pharisees and then removing himself so that they couldn't actually do anything about him, Jesus then reinserts himself into the story, into this man's life, with one more command and also a warning. Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. See, Jesus heals, Jesus provokes, and Jesus demands repentance. Jesus demands obedience. Jesus demands disobedience. After reminding him that he's healed, Jesus tells this man that he needs to make some serious life changes. Stop sinning. How is that even possible? I mean, come on. How is that even possible? Stop sinning. There's some who claim that as Christians, we no longer sin. Those people are liars, self-deceived, and prideful. Even Paul, in Romans chapter 7, specifically admits to continuing to do the things he doesn't want to do. But thanks be to God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The command to stop sinning is in reality a lifelong process. John Owen said, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. We could spend a lot of time on this point alone. And John expounds on this in his first epistle in 1 John. But for now, listen to, the, listen to the hope that we have as Christians. In 1 John chapter 2, this same John who's writing this account, who writes down the command that Jesus said to this man, stop sinning, he gives us this assurance in 1 John 2 verses 1 and 2. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, lame, or well, it is Jesus who is the propitiation for our sins, and he demands obedience. 
See, this command, sin no more, this is really a call for repentance. It's a call to change your life, to turn to Christ, and it's tied to his warning here that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus tied this man's disability. See, you are well. He tied his disability, which he's now been healed of, with his sin, sin no more, and really with potentially worse things, that nothing worse may happen to you. His previous disability, whatever it was, his inability to walk, evidently, was the result of his sin. Now, we know, we know that that is not always the case. In fact, probably it's often not the case. But we also know that there are times when this is true. Whether it's sickness or injury brought about by sins such as maybe alcohol abuse, drunk driving, something like that. Or if it is more subtle, and actually the the result of God's punishment for Christians trapped in sin. See, think of the warnings surrounding the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. Paul will say, For anyone who eats and drinks, that is the supper of the Lord, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. And the Corinthian church was wrapped in sin as a part of their celebration of the Lord's Supper. And he's saying that some of you are weak and ill and have even died because of your sin. I believe the warning here, however, is actually bigger than that. Yeah, there are often immediate consequences to sin, sometimes physical uh, consequences of sickness or even death, but Jesus' concern extends far beyond flesh and bones. The danger is much worse than that. Again, in 1 John, this same John will write in chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous, that is Christ. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is, nor is the one who does not love his brother. That's a warning there. And those words mean what they say. The one who practices sin, who continues living in it. John says, you're not a child of God. Don't believe superstitious things about Jesus. Don't believe that just because you said a magic formula or prayed a a special prayer or whatever that you are a child of God. And no matter how you live now, I prayed a special prayer when I was little and so therefore I'm a child of God. There must be evidence in your life. Jesus tells this man, see you're well. Stop sinning that nothing worse may happen to you. 
There must be evidence in your life. Evidence of a pattern of of killing sin, of a pattern of repentance. There must be evidence of obedience to Jesus' command here. Sin no more. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. But if anyone does sin, and I want to finish on this hope, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You're going to sin. You're going to fall back into old patterns. You're going to let down your guard and sin. And if you do, when you do, you need to remember that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Let's pray. God, as we think of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We see these truths about Jesus, that it is not superstition that heals us, but that it is Christ. That Jesus provokes, sometimes he provokes us. Provokes us to really answer and wrestle with the question, answer the question, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? And then to embrace his command and to be careful with the warning. To see we've been healed. We've been forgiven of our sins and so we now go and sin no more. We put to death the sin that so easily entangles us. We cast that off. We run to Christ. We live a life of repentance so that nothing worse may happen to us. God, I pray that you would transform us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.